Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Lecturer in Strength and Conditioning at Cardiff Metropolitan University, Rodri Lloyd. Thanks for tuning in to episode 144 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I'm excited to bring you Rodri Lloyd. So before we get started, just want to say a massive thanks to uh, Chris Toomes for being the agent of the podcast and lining up another fantastic guest. Uh, it just so happens that Rodri and Chris are good friends. So it was, um, although after months of stalking, um, trying to tie Rodri down because I know he's a busy guy, managed to get it done so massive thanks to Chris Toons for sorting that but just before we get into the chat with Roger um, which we obviously uh, speak about uh, youth and adolescent uh, training so discussing the role of maturation uh, a little bit on biobanding dispelling some myths um, which is kind of a a really good uh, interesting part of the podcast but like I said just before we get into the chat I uh, just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, and also Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. So with regards to Force Decks, uh, rather than me spouting about how good I think they are, I thought the, a really good thing to do would be to um, bring someone who's completely impartial to this and just get their take on why they use Force Decks. And that is last week's guest in Dr. Liam Hennessy. So obviously no um, commercial or financial things come into play with this uh, little endorsement, but I'm just going to lead on to, to Liam just speaking about Force Decks uh, and, and why he uses them and the kind of benefits that he's seen from using that system. So straight after Liam's, um, straight after Liam's little, little talk, uh, we'll get straight into the uh, chat with Rodri Lloyd on episode 144 of the Pace Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoy. Okay, Liam Hennessy here and as a practitioner in terms of coach, coaching, strength and conditioning, sports science, I've always, always wanted to make sure that we could blend what we know about athlete performance from a laboratory setting where we can make detailed measurements, but apply those and use the same instruments into a field setting so we can use them on a day-to-day basis because they give so much information. And one such, one such device is the FORCE platform. Back in the 1980s, studying in Loughborough University, I was privileged to be able to actually spend a lot of time working on FORCE platforms. But I always felt that the lab setting wasn't the ideal setting where we could assist athletes in a more holistic way. So when I first met Dr. Daniel Cohn in Dundalk a number of years ago, as he was carrying the FORCE decks, which are FORCE platforms, under his arms, as he was demonstrating their capability, I knew the time had come and the day had come when I just had to have those instruments. So today, even where I sit, I arrived out here with my athletes carrying four stacks, or rather the PASCO cells, the PASCO plates, which are a, a, a mini version of the 4004 stacks. And uh, they have really helped me. They've really, really helped me and my athletes over the last few years, in particular because of five unique features which are, as I say, unique to the Forstex. And they are 
portability, ease of use through beautiful software, dual plate functioning, instant feedback, and very significantly for the future, multi-users worldwide. So portability, my first unique feature of the Force Deck, is that just like I've done, I can carry them to where I want them to be. I can place them on the floor in a gym, and in a couple of minutes they will have self-leveled, and I can just make that adjustment, and bingo, I'm ready to use them. I use them for many, many aspects of my program, for training and also for readiness to train and monitoring my athletes. Second key feature is ease of use. The software makes Forstex stand out among their competitors among competitors in this in this area because the, the software is beautifully displayed and we get graphic measurements of balance left to right and of outputs. So that's a real thumbs up for Forstex. The dual play technology and function has perhaps revolutionized our understanding of balance and, and symmetries or imbalance and asymmetries. Um, we are doing some studies at the moment, applied, taking data and information from the athletes that we're involved with, across sports from golf to team sports to individual athletic sports. And it is really, really helping us to understand what's going on with training adaptation as well. Instant feedback, I've mentioned it already, if we can monitor our athletes on a day-to-day -day basis during training, prior to training, with such a specific tool that gives us kinetic data and metrics, it, it on, it's only going to add to our observation abilities as a coach. Finally, the whole notion that force decks are being used around the world in many different settings probably makes them the most used force platform uh, in the world today. The capability, therefore, is there of collaborating and integrating and forming collaborative research programs using this system because it's the same software, it's the same hardware that people are using. So thus, issues of validity, reliability are no longer a major concern. So there are the five key features that I have found Forstex to be in my uh, few years of using them. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So delighted this morning to welcome Rodri Lloyd, the uh, Senior Lecturer at Cardiff Met in Strength and Conditioning. So welcome to the podcast, Rodri. Thanks very much, Rob. Yeah, great to be here. Nice, yeah, good to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of background on you and what you're currently doing? Yeah, no problem. Um, so at the moment, uh, as you said, I'm a Senior Lecturer in Strength and Conditioning um, at Cardiff Metropolitan University um, and in that role that includes sort of uh, lecture delivery, um, supervision of students, um, my own research but then um, last few years we've been able to um, pull together and launch the Youth Physical Development Centre which is a, um, an after school program that we um, provide strength addition and provision for, um, for young athletes and I work in that alongside uh, alongside some some really some really good coaches, um, John Radner, um, Tom Matthews, Jason Pedley, Sylvia Muscop, Steph Morris, these sorts of of guys, and you know they're they're really good at working with the young athletes, and um, that's something that we're able to contribute, I guess, to the development of the athletes themselves, 
Um, and then in turn, that also um, provides us with uh, research opportunities that we can uh, that we can answer. So yeah, it's a really exciting time at the university. Um, there's been some new um, developments in terms of facilities and staff. So um, that's that, that's that's great. Um, the other sort of roles I have, I guess, um, are a research fellow um, at, uh, at Wintech, which is uh, an institution in New Zealand, and then a, um, a research associate at uh, Auckland University of Technology as well. So um, across those sort of three institutions, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's busy, but it's, uh, but it's really exciting. And when that'll keep you busy, the kids do? Yeah, yeah. Two year old, uh, got a two year old and a, and a five year old, and um, they uh, they they're definitely turning me grey. But uh, also, it, uh, it, it they're great fun. They're great fun, and uh, yeah, able to uh, able to keep me young, I suppose. Nice. So these after school clubs, what what ages are you are you talking about? Yeah. So we intentionally when when we sort of set up the um, the facility, it was uh, it's obviously purpose built for. Um, academic delivery. Um, so we've got a, a fairly popular course at, at Cardiff Met, um, and it was in sort of, I guess, re- return to the numbers of, of students that we had. Um, but the the after school program, we intentionally tried to avoid um, sort of curtailing it to a specific age band or um, specific sports. So we've got a real sort of um, open open door policy. The youngest that's come through um i've probably been around sort of nine years of age um and then we have all the way up to sort of i guess what you would classify maybe sort of senior academy type type athletes um and it's growing so we've got a, a range of sports we've got um rugby um we've got rowing um we've got tennis um and and some others, so it's it's uh, it's something that hopefully over the next sort of five to ten years is really gonna is really gonna sort of take off. Mm-hmm. And it's better than going to an after school club and playing dodgeball like I used to do when I was. Yeah, no, we, we try. And, yeah, yeah. We, we try and certainly keep some um, some sort of fun aspects to the program, yeah, definitely, and, yeah. uh, and and bring in some sort of uh, games and so on. But um, you know, also if we're sort of getting these kids in and uh, and hopefully they stay with us for you know a number of years, then um, certainly it's something that we look to try and you know develop them technically and um, and really give them a um, I guess a, a broad range of of athletic qualities. I think I think that's what we what we try and adhere to. Um, there are some I guess sort of pillars, some real sort of uh, consistent messages and themes that we have in the program. So. Um, they typically revolve around developing movement skill and developing basic levels of muscle strength. Um, but then we also try and hit hit some of the other fitness components around those, um, especially given their kids and they're and they're so um, responsive to you know a number of different training modalities. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to get a little bit deeper on this on this program because it's uh, it sounds really interesting. How do you manage it with obviously kids that are, are I guess a pigeon them whole into I'm a footballer, I'm a rugby player, I'm a netballer or whatever it may be across um, a, quite a big age group as well. What's it, what's it look like with regards to the kind of intricacies of what these, these kids are actually doing? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a challenge. Um, and, you know, sort of speaking to, to other coaches that are involved in, in different sports, um, you know, they, they speak of similar challenges where you have 
um, kids who are potentially identified as uh, loosely talented, I suppose, is, is a word that's often used. Um, you know, and they're identified at an early age. They come enter a program, um, and then they're exposed to you know high volumes of of repetitive sports specific training. Um, we actually see uh, strength and conditioning as an opportunity for the kids to sample. Um, so sometimes we we run in uh, an intern internship program through the um through the facility as well so we some of our students are, are able to sign up for um for a year-long internship and i think sometimes they're surprised at uh the simplicity of the program um i, I, th- I think they expect it to be you know very advanced very specific to the sports that the athletes are are participating in um and strictly speaking it you know it's just sort of grounded on on basics um you know can they do things such as you know unilateral lower body movements bilateral lower body movements push pull um anti-rotation all these things you know we're not certainly not reinventing the wheel but um you know myself and the other coaches that are involved in in the facility you know they are definitely hallmarks of the programs that we want them to be able to do um you know lots of athletic qualities um, but we want them to do them really well, uh, so we, we we tend to have a, a simple approach to to programming. Mm-hmm. So you hear a lot about people obviously saying concentrate on the basics, and maybe not even with kids with adults as well. But I think that the difficulty for people, or the way I see it anyway, is taking that on board, that message on board about the basics, but knowing at what point to go. Okay, that's we're kind of going to move on from that. How are you, are you finding that kind of difficult with the kind of older kids? Are you still revisiting the basics like you've just mentioned? Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose the the approach to hitting sort of the, the different movement patterns or athletic qualities, you know, I think that remains irrespective of, of whether they're sort of, you know, the, the eight, nine-year-old coming in or whether they're the, the senior academy, you know, sort of moving towards the, uh, the adult type uh, age ranges but I think the way we, we approach it is is that you know we have those sorts of skills in our mind when we create different exercises and with the real young kids you know we try and I guess not hide or we, we mask some of those movements within you know different types of challenges and you know some of the stuff we've done in terms of like you know sort of obstacle courses and, and through those you know, the kids have been exposed to the right movement patterns, but um, they're not seeing it as just sets, reps, um, you know, sort of week on week. And, and I think that that aids in terms of their buy-in um, and the way we're able to sort of retain numbers. Um, and sort of John, Radner, Tomac, is that, you know, they're excellent at those sorts of, um, of activities. So when we get older athletes coming into the, the centre, um, you know, it's a, it's can be a challenge. So, yes, you want to, to sort of hit those basic sort of fundamental movements, and we definitely do that. Um, but similarly, we are cognizant of the fact they might be in, a, in an age group where, you know, unless you're, you're careful with that programming, you know, they could actually feel slightly alienated from the rest of their cohort. So 
There is a, uh, I guess people talk about the art of coaching, and I think it's you know very much on a case by case basis that way in terms of of how we really go about directing the programs for the individual athletes. So just moving on slightly, but keeping this in, along the same theme, would be the impact of growth and maturation. In I'd like to keep it in that kind of specific cohort that you're working with. If that's all right. Yeah. What what kind of what kind of issues could potentially arise um, as kids are going through that growth and maturation stage? Yeah. So um, I said this is probably something that we're gonna uh, it will become more obvious and um, we'll, we'll come across these problems a little bit more as, as the children are with us for longer periods of time. Um, but certainly when you look at general research, sort of anecdotal evidence from practice, um, you know, the, the issue around maturation is, um, is it's important for coaches to be aware of. Um, you know, when you look at the, I guess, the classic you know, legends of, of pediatric exercise science like, you know, Bob Molina, Neil Armstrong, Craig Williams, um, you know, those real big names that have really moved the field forward. You know, they've, they've identified some of the, the key issues around maturation. And, you know, strictly speaking, when you have a, a cohort of, of uh, young athletes who are all in the same chronological age group, so they could all be you know, 10-year-olds, they could all be 13-year-olds, whatever group you're working with, the chances are that, that the, the degree of maturation within that group, um, or the range of maturation, sorry, is going to vary dramatically. Um, so we can have, um, in one chronological age group, you could have two individuals that are, are different in terms of biological maturation by up to up to five years. So when you look at those um, at your training programs, you know we need to be able to account for those differences. Um, now, what I would say is that um, I wouldn't say that our training programs are maturation driven. Um, so it's not a question of us seeing, oh, this child is you know two years away from their their peak growth spurt, so they are given this training program. Um, I always liken it to it's, it's one of the ingredients that, that go into the pot when you're making your decisions about training program directions. And, um, you know, it's unquestionably the major thing that drives our training programs is technical competency. And, um, you know, that, that's that's probably sounds fairly straightforward, but, you know, it's important given the fact that Myself and our and our group do a lot of research, I guess, around the topic of of maturation. Um, you know, it's it's to help explain, you know, what's going on in terms of development, um, how that might link into um, injury risk, how it might inform um, training responsiveness. But you know, day to day, when you see the kids in front of you, you are ultimately making decisions primarily based on on technical competency. Um, so yeah, I mean, a, a lot of our work, I suppose, uh, historically in our group, um, has been around, uh, training responsive, uh, training responsiveness. So we've, um, uh, sort of taken part in, uh, in a number of training interventions. Um, and we've tried to look at if we have, for example, a, a group of, of children who are pre 
growth spurt. We have a, um, a range of adolescents who are, who are potentially post. Then in terms of a training responsiveness, do they differ? Um, and do they differ in terms of um, the types of training intervention we, we give them? Um, and in terms of maybe a magnitude of response, um, the rate of response, how, how does it differ? Um, so that's that's one of our, our key issues, and I guess the that links back to long-term athletic development, and uh, and I suppose the the golden million-dollar question is, you know, if we give a, a certain training um, program to kids over a prolonged period of time um, versus a different training program, you know, what, what's the what's the outcome in terms of athleticism, physical performance at a later stage? Um, but that is a question that is a extremely difficult to answer, uh, and B, you know, takes takes time. Um, so uh, that's something we'll hopefully keep uh, keep chipping away at over the next uh, next five to ten years. Um, and I suppose the other area that we have become um, more interested in, um, and it's I guess coming off the back of some of the work we'll be doing with football, and um, especially Dr. Paul Reed, who's um, who's now out at uh, at Aspeter. Um so his PhD was was looking at, uh, at sort of injury risk factors in in uh, male soccer players and and how that is influenced by by maturation. So I guess the the performance and the trainability versus the, the injury risk reduction. I suppose that's where our major sort of key drives are at the moment. Mm-hmm. So is there any exam? Is there any scenario that? maturation would lead the program and and the reason I ask that is because there's obviously a lot of publicity or there has been a lot of publicity over the last months and years about uh biobanding and I just wondered if any if I, I don't know the context of how these you know football clubs are actually are they taking the skill you know the skill side of things into their decision whether they do bioband a certain kid or a certain team um, but is there any scenario where it would be solely maturation led? Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, I suppose you, you, you could group um, according to maturational status, um, but ultimately, what you then deliver from an exercise selection, you know, progressions, loads, volumes, and so on, um, you know, I, I would still revert back to, to technical competency and, and what I'm actually seen in front of me um so for example you could have two kids that are both fall within a let's just say a, you know 90 percent of predicted adult height um you know so, so on paper they're similar but actually when you see them moving in front of you they're they're, they're completely different um so i mean the whole the whole stuff around biobanding um it sort of has been made um, I guess sort of big news and and it's sort of fallen in the media um, within football and and more so there's been some stuff in I think in, in rugby recently and Dr. Sean Cummins at um, at Bath University is is really the the leader in the field for for this stuff and um, super smart guy and I think if I'm honest with you, I think some of the uh, the stuff around by Bannon has, has been confused a little bit and. I think some people see it as a um, as a replacement for chronological age grouping, um, and I, you know I don't think for speedy sure that that's not necessarily the way um, you know he 
he would promote it. It's about providing opportunities throughout maybe a calendar year where you have some bio-banded small tournaments. So it's a it's a sort of a periodic exposure. It's not a a, a chronic exposure over you know multiple seasons. Um, but from a, as I said, from a, a gym perspective, or whether you're running track sessions or or whatever, then I would I would always be more inclined to to look at technical competency. But then our understanding of maturation and our understanding of how potentially biologically mature a group of of kids are will help our decision making and help explain what we're seeing maybe in terms of some of the numbers that they're they're producing in the gym or the if they're seeing a somewhat you know a reduction in in skill level, then that you know it may be related to related to maturation. So why why wouldn't um, biobanding be a, a chronic thing and just just kind of dipped in and out of? What could the potential pitfalls be of doing it longer term? Yeah, I mean, I think if if I'm, if I'm honest, it's it's about making sure that. Um, you know, kids will be within their their chronological age group. They'll be amongst their peers, and I think sometimes when we when we look at training or we look at um, uh, you know sort of groupings for skill or for sport, you know, it's very easy for us to only look at physical performance. And I think you know there's a real psychological component to it, um, and potentially being withdrawn from your age group bandings then. You know, you've been taken away from from your peers, and that may have some sort of psychological impact. Um, that said, on the flip side, there are some reports from um, from the biobanding type research, which is is slowly emerging that you know actually those those children who are who are less mature, and then they're coming up against um, uh, players of of the same maturity level. They they are actually sort of getting a um, or reported to have. Um, the feelings of you know they're having a fairer deal when they're playing in their sports, um, and sometimes then those older maturing um, athletes feel as though you know they're being challenged more. So um, I, I think with everything, you know, it's I guess it's about everything in moderation, and um, uh, you know who knows where it's going to go. But certainly at this moment in time, um, I think it's probably about having dosages. Of, uh, of, of the biobanding. As always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Rodri. Hope you're enjoying part one. So, just want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. I just want to give you a little story. So, I'd put a few tweets out this week about um, investing in technology. And one in particular was Is there actually going to be anyone on the end of the phone? Uh, after you've invested your th- well, your clubs or institutions thousands of pounds, um, when the actual technology does go wrong, because inevitably at some point it will. And the thing about fatigue science is that there actually is someone on the end of the phone or end of the email. So I had emailed the guys uh, early one morning when I was away, knowing that. Um, the guys in Vancouver obviously a couple of hours behind the UK uh, and it'll be the middle of the night but even so I got an email back within a couple of hours which is obviously the middle of the night in Vancouver um, sorting my query out that I had with um, a sinking problem that, that got dealt with within half an hour so just before you do um, invest in technology and spend your club's uh, hard-earned money just think about whether 
when it does go wrong, whether someone's going to be on the end of the phone, which, like I say, a fatigue science, it 100% is. So if you want to check out uh, or learn more about fatigue science, you can visit them online at fatiguescience.com or on Twitter at fatigue science. So hope you enjoy part two and I'll speak soon. So just to move on again, uh, I just want to touch on something that obviously you're um, done awfully amounts of awful amounts of um, research into, and that's for kind of strength training and, and plyometrics in in youth athletes. In a in a relatively short space of time, do you just want to give us your kind of view on that as a as a whole, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper as as we go along? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... Yeah, the, the, the whole stuff around resistance training, it's uh, on, on some of the notes you sent through, it's about maybe dispelling some of the myths. And, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's funny because I, I spoke to a good friend and, and colleague of mine, and really, if I'm honest with the guy who's sort of uh, shoulders I've, I've stood on, so Avery Fagenbaum, and, um, you know, he said, it's just a shame that we're still talking about dispelling the myths. And, um, and we we were chatting about it, and then unfortunately, you, know, you get so many incident uh, uh, sort of occasions where you know it's either a parent or a coach or a medic, and you know the the same myths keep emerging. So you've almost got to keep banging the drum. But you know, like people listening to to the podcast, I'm sure will have heard it a million times before. But you you know the the I guess the preconceived fears from you know, sort of 20, 30, 40 years ago in terms of resistance training, um, stunting growth, resistance training not being suitable until you've you've gone through the adolescent growth spurt. Um, you know, they are, there's just no evidence to, to support that. Um, you know, the research is, is, is fairly clear that, you know, appropriately prescribed, um, well-coached resistance training provides a stimulus to actually increase bone remodeling, um, increase bone mineral density. So, you know, instead of actually causing damage, it's actually uh, very much a a supportive stimulus. Um, You know, that said, bone as a tissue does have a fracture threshold. Um, But, you know, those sorts of, of thresholds are reached typically when, you know, a child will fall and put out a you know, an outstretched arm on, on the ice or on the floor, whatever, and, and, and you know, unfortunately end up with a broken arm. But, you know, how many times does that happen in a training environment? Almost almost zero. Um, you know, the, the number of cases where there has been some sort of um, injury related to resistance training um, in younger populations in the literature, um, you know, have typically included a child either lifting too much weight or a child has been training unsupervised, um, you know, and that's that's almost you know a recipe for disaster there. Um, so when we've got good coaches working in a safe environment, giving good quality coaching, you know, it's a it's a very much a safe uh, and effective effective training mode, um, and it's you know it has multiple benefits. You know, it will have a uh, it'll have a crossover for for strength, speed, power, um, probably some stuff around endurance performance in terms of making athletes slightly more efficient. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it's fairly clear across you know a, a large amount of literature now. Um, you know, we've 
There's a number of position statements. There's a number of of, uh, of empirical manuscripts. Um, there's a whole raft of years of of experience, of anecdotal experience from coaches. You know, it's um, it's a. I, I wish we wouldn't have to keep talking about it, but um, unfortunately, it's a it's a drum that we, I guess, do keep need to need to keep banging. Is it just a question of time, just to let that filter filter down and filter through to the kind of parents and things? And 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 are we as kind of coaches and and professionals? Is have the myths been dispelled from this section of the population? It's just the maybe the like I said, the parents and the them kind of sections of population that aren't. Yeah, or is it still a mix? Yeah, it's a tricky one. So I mean, something that we're quite. Um, uh, passionate about, I suppose, in, in our research group is um, is about trying to convert what we might put in a, a research manuscript and get that into um, you know usable, digestible information for for parents and for and for coaches who have a, who have an interest. So um, you know the position statements are are good; they're important documents. Um, and you know they have a, a whole host of information in them, but ultimately, you know, sometimes the the people who get hold of those papers are, are actually the we're preaching to the converted almost. Um, so it is about education. Um, you know, I think there's probably still some work to do in terms of getting messages out to um, to medical professionals um, and in terms of through their through their training um, practices. Um, and and to continue to educate parents and and I guess provide a, a range of of mediums for parents. Um, you know, some of the the, the parents of, of young athletes. You know, they'll be really super keen on you know their their kid participating in extra sessions in a week to try and you know get a get a competitive advantage against their peers. But then you know they they're really reserved or, or concerned about potentially giving their kids exposure to a strength and conditioning session in that week, um, you know, for fears around the, you know, injury and so on. Um, but you're never going to get a more injurious environment than the sport itself. So um, it is about probably just changing, um, hopefully changing opinions over time. And uh, and I guess through through educating as, as much as possible. Um so yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a challenging one, but um, you know I think, as I said, the 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 wealth of evidence will hopefully eventually catch up and um, and, and we'll hopefully get as many people on board with it as possible. Mm-hmm. So, have you got any examples of maybe where what you've heard or what you've you've used personally around the parental engagement side of things? I know a lot of clubs are starting to put on workshops and things for parents around food and you know, the benefits of strength training, all these kind of things. But is there anything in particular that you've seen that's been really successful? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The um, I think a, a, a trap that we can that we can fall into is, is actually viewing parents um, as, you know, a hindrance to the program and, um, <laughs> you know, through their fears are, you know, they're, they're really holding us back because, you know, the vast majority of parents are are there because you know they're they're trying to be as supportive as they can. They're passionate about their child doing well. Um, so I, I think 
quite often when when we're communicating with parents, it's important that we that we do it in a supportive manner. Um, a lot of things that sort of fly around social media are, you know, it's the the top ten things that parents shouldn't do, or these are the don'ts. And you know, the, the trouble is, you've got you know parents of kids there who are you know there for cause they you know love their kids and, and want them to do well. So it's probably about framing that in terms of you know what what you should do and what you could do, um, and trying to work with parents. So. Um, from that, I think, yeah, sort of workshops or um, like sort of parents' evenings where you can get some information across to parents um, is good. Um, and similar with coaches, you know, if you sort of give maybe sort of coach ed type workshops. Um, and, and, and I think the other way to do it is potentially have, you know, leaflets or maybe some stuff online and, um, you know, give a, a range of, a range of, of education, educational tools will make them available. So, you know, there will be some parents. So my, my wife's a classic example where, you know, she may not necessarily want to go to read a position statement straight off the bat, but she's the sort of person that actually when she gets a small piece of information, her interest will actually you know, grow and grow. So I think that's the approach we try and take, you know, not try and just bamboozle parents, but um, give them small snippets, and then, and hopefully over time, you know, get, give them give them more information if, if they're seeking it. Mm-hmm. So another thing along the same lines is the bio banding that's kind of got a lot of publicity recently, and that's that's the role of play with youth athletes. And you've mentioned that at the start with regards to the after school um, athletes, but have you seen a kind of more of a focus on this from from coaches or is this is this something that um that will eventually kind of become become the norm i mean what's your what's your view around the role of play with with youth athletes yeah so um definitely definitely has a role um definitely has a role to play pun pun um i mean i i think again I think it's about having things in moderation so you know all of some people will put play on the agenda and then you know it's all about play but it's about you know I think apportioning some time within training sessions to allow um, allow kids to have a, a you know um, an opportunity to be creative um, and to actually you know have some constraints in there that so you actually hopefully help them along the way in terms of getting to the end result, whilst not actually just telling them what to do all the time. Um, that said, you know I, I do think there's a, a risk of, you know, our play is the answer to everything, and then we end up in a position where, you know, we're we're we're, we're not given enough coaching and enough input. Um, because, you know, I liken it to driving a car. We would never just sort of say to a kid, all right, here's the keys, have a go. Um, and it's similar with with um, the way I see strength and conditioning. You know, we need to put the basics of movement in. Um, you know, kids need to be educated on, on how to move. And then they need to be afforded opportunities as well to, you know, to practice those movements and to develop those movements in a more of a free play environment. So, um the way I would, the way I approach it, and, and a number of the coaches in the in our facility approach is, you know, a lot of the warm up, maybe 10, 15 minutes in that warm up time, 
Um, you know, that will be an opportunity for to expose them to different types of movements, different types of exercises, a range of movement patterns. Um, but then when you drill down into the main component part of the session, then, uh, you know, I, I think we probably do get a little bit more, um, I guess, coach-driven and, and a little bit more technically um, orientated. Um, but that will, you know, that said, that will depend a little bit on the group we're working with. So, um, you know, the the warm-up or opportunities to for play and being creative, we'll spend a longer proportion of training time doing that sort of stuff if we're with very young athletes. And then obviously as we get more towards the senior age, then it becomes slightly more focused and um, more about, I guess, the outcomes of the main the main emphasis of the training session. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of clubs spending, I'm guessing, a decent amount of money taking the kids out of the kind of training ground environment and going to rock climbing or yeah. know, trampoline and things like that. Do you think that has a Do you think that has a role in the kids' development? Yeah, no, I, I do. I mean, I, I think in terms of uh, skill transfer, um, you know, I think. Sometimes too often, too often we, we try and get our, our pros to be too specific um, in terms of the you know the movement patterns that we're going to see in the sport and the forces that we're going to see in the sport. And um, I, I you know I, I stole a uh, you know a good quote from uh, Jeremy Shepherd, um, and he said it's not necessarily about training specificity; it's about training relevance. And I, you know I I always try and keep that at the forefront of my mind in terms of. Um, you know those types of activities. If you're going to take your kids rock climbing or or to trampoline, whatever it is, you know they're 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 likely to pick up skills that will you know transfer across into the development of general athleticism that will support their performance in their actual sport that they they're trying to sort of excel in. Um, and when you think of, especially in a good example, is sort of invasion sports. I suppose you know if you've got a young soccer player, then we've actually expose them to, to rugby or to basketball or to field hockey, whatever it is, then actually in terms of, you know, the, the pattern recognition, the, the visual sort of cueing and, and those sorts of skills, you know, they are definitely transferable and there's, you know, there is some, um, there's some literature to support that. So, you know, again, it's about in moderation. Is it going to be the main aspect of a program? I, w- I would probably say no. Um, but periodically through the program, is it good to expose them to different things? Then, then the answer is yes. You know, and um, having that sort of sampling-based approach um, to, to to youth athlete development programs is you know is really important. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that I, certainly I struggled with um, in, in this type of situation was when coaches say, "Well, how do we know that anything that you've spent five hundred quid taking the kids trampoline in? Yeah, they've had a great time." But how can we know that that's transferring across? I mean, you could say that about anything I know, but it's just so difficult when there's obviously a monetary uh, association to it and it's seen as something completely different from the norm. I'm guessing that's something that people struggle with convincing coaches that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that that isn't a challenge and, um, you know, it's not unheard of that you know parents might might see a session going on from from an S and C standpoint and sort of say, well, hang on, that doesn't look like tennis or that doesn't look like rowing, um, and in some cases, no, that's absolutely what we don't want it to look like. 
Um, but you know, in terms of that, I think that's probably just a little bit about relationship development. I think with coaches um, and possibly just you know making making the most of some time. So you know, it may be that you can just have sort of five ten minutes at the start of a training session where you might provide an opportunity for um, sampling a different type of sport. Um, and over time, you almost earn a little bit more time back from from the coaches. But I think that tends to be that tends to be situation specific. Um, certainly, that that importance of of relationship relationship building. Um, so one of the the guys I learned from um, when I first started out, Chris Toomes, you know, he was you know, he's massive on that, and you know, excellent at sort of building those relationships. And um, you know, I think over time, when you build up some trust with the athletes themselves, with the coaches, then I think you have a little bit more scope to, to mould that mold that schedule and mould the, the content of the training programme. Mm-hmm. And I've got to thank Toomsy as well for putting me in contact with you as well. Can't oh, forget that one. Yeah, no, he's, good, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. So I'm conscious that you've got a, a day of work ahead, so I'm going to uh, just round up there. But where can people... Where's the best place for people to access your work, Rodri? Um, oh, yeah, good question. Um, so I suppose uh, ResearchGate um, will be a, a, a good one. Um, it'd be remiss of me uh, not to give a shout to to John Oliver, who's um, I guess my main my main collaborator, and um, and he and I have sort of done a, a reasonable amount of work in the last I guess sort of seven eight years. Um, but I would definitely encourage you to check out people to check out John's um, John's profile on on ResearchGate, um, either of our staff profiles on on the Cardiff Met website as well. But um, yeah, no, I said uh, hopefully there will be um, some people who are interested in listening. But uh, yeah, if um, people people want to people want to read a little bit more, then we have some open access articles. But certainly ResearchGate and um, uh, maybe Twitter is is probably the best place to. Best place to check us out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to test you now. Can you remember what your uh, Twitter handle is? Uh, I, I can. I think it's uh, it's at at Rodri underscore s underscore Lloyd. Yeah, that's a nice, cool. nice catchy one. But, uh, <laughs> Shot and sweet. Yeah, no, exactly. But um, hey, thanks for the opportunity. I said uh, I, I've seen the um, the sorts of people that you've had on the show before, and uh, yeah, very um, very humbled to be uh, to be amongst them. No, it's great to have you on, mate. And uh, again, thanks to Chris for, for making the introduction. No dramas. Cool. Well, we'll keep in touch and I'll, I'll speak to you soon, Rodri. Will do. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, pal. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 144 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Rodri. So I've got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. But if you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your chosen podcast player. Um, so you'll get an instant download on every th- every Thursday when the new podcast comes out. So like I say, um, probably 125 hours of audio now on the podcast. So if you are enjoying it, uh, please feel free to share on whatever medium you choose. So look forward to speaking you- to you in episode 145. And thanks a lot.